To me, the X-Men became about, it was actually about adults versus children. Because I felt that the whole thrust of the X-Men was actually about the generational thing, that people dislike their children because new ways of looking at things and adults kind of don't like that because it's threatening to them. So I saw the X-Men as being about that and basically that's where we took it in that direction. Basically about the war between adults and youth. I don't know. Don't look at me. I'm looking at you. You got yourself into that. <laughs> I'm looking at you for validation, Stan. <laughs> Welcome to E for Evolution, examining Grant Morrison's X-Men, and we are your hosts. I'm Perry. Hey guys, it's Oscar here. Hi, uh, it's Pat. And uh, this is it, guys. This is the the final um, the final read episode of the of the read through. The um, we're talking about here comes tomorrow. Uh, the last four issues of the Morrison run. Uh, so that's one fifty one, uh, which is just here comes tomorrow. Uh, 152, Surrender the Starlit City, 153, We All Have to Die Sometime, and 154, Rescue and Emergency. And uh, uh, the credits on this, obviously, Grant Morrison, as always. Uh, and this time we're bringing back a classic X-Men artist uh, who did one of my favorite runs on the book in the um, the Australian Outback years, and that's uh, Mark Silvestri is, came back to do the the, the art on this. Uh, Billy Tan and Eric Basaldua, probably mispronouncing that, um, and Joe Weems were inkers, it looks like. Um, Matt Miller was the colorist. Uh, Matt Banning's also listed as inker. I'm not sure how many of these just did the cover or what. Um, and Russ Wooten is the uh, letterer. Uh, Corey Settlemeyer and Mike Martz, Stephanie Moore are editors on this. Joe Casada, editor-in-chief. And I think the credits are pretty much the same throughout the entire run. Uh, but anyway, what do you guys think of Here Comes Tomorrow? It's the most Morrison ending one could hope for. So <laughs> that that is my initial hot take. I'm very glad that it ended on a very... Because I felt like when it got closer to the end of the run, I think he knew the end was coming sort of starting to put the toys back into the shelf but that mechanism of like alternate future gave him the ability to go out on very morrisonian terms which is very cool oscar i thought it was a really cool take on um days of future past and mm -hmm. the phoenix saga and you know I, i'm trying to I'm trying to say it in a gentle way, so I don't mean this to be any kind of uh, criticism, uh, but, you know, a lot of the stories we see in X-Men, after you've read the comics for 20 years, they kind of recycle the stories a lot, you know, and um, we see different versions of the stories all the time. And so this was maybe like a really good mashup of um, Days of Future Past, Phoenix, and maybe Age of Apocalypse as well, I guess, by seeing um, 
different visions or versions of characters that, that we know. Um, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I don't normally like the um, alternate universe kind of stories. I feel like sometimes they don't carry a lot of weight because you know everything's just going to go back to normal once it sort of resets, which can be a really cheap sort of duess fashion art. But uh, this was really cool. I liked it. I liked yeah. it a lot, yeah. actually. I, I'm, and, uh, I'm, a, oh. I'm a sucker for, for alternate universe uh, future stories. So this is totally in, in my wheelhouse. Um, so yeah, I, I thought this was great. Um, and just echoing a lot of what you guys said, you know, it's a nice <clears throat> callback to Days of Future Past. And much like, um, and if I'm not mistaken, wasn't, uh, didn't the Claremont Byrne partnership pretty much end after Days of Future Past in the comics? I don't know enough about that part of history to... Speak Oscar authoritatively about it. Do you, do you remember? I, yeah, I'm. I'm the same. I've. 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 I don't remember. I'm trying to think of myself to think when Burn ended. I. Th I think you might be right, but I don't want to. Um, I don't want to sign it in stone because I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up. Okay. Um. But yeah. Either way, I think it's kind of. It. it it's really kind of cool that how, like Oscar said, Morrison kind of merge the dark phoenix saga with days of future past right when because when you talk to most x fans about the two most consequential storylines especially at this time period right now obviously you'd probably add in house of x and all that kind of stuff to it too but at this time period i think you know easily you ask people what were the two most consequential x-men stories they would say dark phoenix saga and days of future past like those had the most impact on the on the series on the on the franchise as a whole i think those two in together so morrison ending their run on this kind of bang going out with both of these combining it together was um was a nice little bit of nostalgia and also uh they use it to tell do some pretty interesting things and there's a lot of meta stuff i picked up on, on in this arc like what <clears throat> Well, um, for starters, I this is one thing that I realized because I'm reading this and I'm looking at uh, Wolverine because this is set 150 years in the future. And other than a little bit of wisps of gray in his hair, he still looks the same. And I think, and even, and he's even back to wearing his, co the, the, the yellow costume in a fashion, mm -hmm. right? He's wearing the torn yellow shirt. I feel like that's kind of a commentary on the fact that Wolverine is always going to be part of the X-Men. He's never going to change. <laughs> I think there was a there's a little bit of that in there because we've seen because if you look at the original Days of Future Past, that was only what like 20, 30 years in the future and that Wolverine looked much older than this one. So I feel like there was a little bit of commentary being made there as just one example. But also just the whole idea of sublime and and we'll probably dive into this a little bit more later but this whole idea of keeping mutants trapped in this endless cycle of of fighting mm -hmm. feels very meta and could be a reference to the powers that be at marvel it could be a reference to the 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 um the the fans who who want things to always go back to the way it was even down to 
right? Uh, at the end of the story, Gene literally changes time and changes things to allow it to go back to the way it was. Well, and uh, I think what's interesting is so we find my sublime's motivation is as I read it, essentially like he can't abide newer forms of life or like forms of life that would um, evolve past him, I guess. So yeah, I, I think you're right, Perry. And it carries that uh, kind of meta point from the previous arc of Morrison saying like, why can't we let these things evolve and change? But I do think saying that it just reset is a disservice. Like that last shot, I think like letting Emma and Scott be together enables a lot of different kinds of X-Men stories. No, that's true. Um, point, when I, so. I, yeah, I think I'm probably being a little bit too strong when I say reset. I think Morrison is giving the chance for something mm -hmm. new when at the same time, they know that it's just gonna, right after this, they're going back to the costumes. I mean, there, there were costumes, but I think like after this, there there's a sense in which, like I don't think for the longest time, they never ever came back to, I mean, yeah, they were in the mansion for a bit, but I, I this the aftermath of the storyline started out this sort of more, I guess, separationist type of take on the X-Men, like, uh, you know, House of M and Utopia and all that stuff. Like they... They never really went back, I thought, to like that kind of 90s, more uh, integrationist type of outlook for the X-Men. I don't know. I feel like the the reload stuff. So when you had Waden on Astonishing and Claremont on Uncanny and Austin on uh, uh, on X-Men, I feel like they very much did go back to the 90s sense just with Professor X being gone and with Scott and Emma being together. Those were like the two biggest changes that Morrison brought that kind of stuck around. Um, and even that, you know, and, um, and Gene being dead as well. And Gene being, being dead. dead. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, but I just feel like the way they led was very different from the way that Charles led. And that notion, I think, well, at least for a little while before, well, even after House of M a little bit, like this concept of, the school being a school continues. Like yeah. they still had kids in there. Oscar, what are your thoughts? Um, I've, I'm, I'm really struggling to think of how to, how to word it properly. I feel like that the biggest disservice that was done to this run in particular, and as soon as it finished, I guess that's what we're talking about, the, the finish of it is the, the way that Marvel seemed to just try and wipe it off the map almost when when it was so good and it was so groundbreaking and and I guess you're right the whole idea of this arc is about everything changing and going back to being how it was before and they really did push it away like we, we're talking about the things that change Jean died well she's kind of died before and been gone for before more, a little bit more permanent this time. It lasted nearly 20 years. And Professor X leaving, he's always like come and goes. I don't know that that's really a huge change. I feel like I don't, I feel like I'm more with you, Perry, on this, that I feel like they did go back to the mansion and things did kind of go 90s 
for, for for quite a while. Like, uh, how long was it between this was, and the, the Utopia? Almost like ten years, right? I don't know if it was that long. No, I don't think it was between like when and when. Between this and, so, and Utopia, um, I would say like ten thousand, years. Not ten. Two thousand and three, two thousand and four. This finished, right? Yeah. Yeah, two thousand three. I think is when this finished, and then. House of M, I think, happened around what two thousand five was that, or maybe. No, I think that's too early. Maybe it was a little. Just look it up, actually. Yeah, we could. Well, because it happened before Civil War, right? Didn't Civil Civil War came before House of M? No, no, no. House of M first. I. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, you're right. That's Civil Yeah, yeah, you're right. I I made a mistake. No, but you were right on actually. Two thousand five. So Gold Star. Yeah, 2005 uh, happened yep. and, and um, mm-hmm. is when House of M happened. And that, I think, you can make the argument that's when they really started changing things around. Um, and that change lasted, you know, a good long while. And then that, I think, Pat, at that point, so from 2005 onward, that's when they started doing the more the more isolationist stuff. And then you eventually, and even though they were still at the mansion for a time, there was still kind of a different feel to the X-Men books in the post house of M days, right. Leading up to Messiah complex, because you had, um, you had Mike Carey's whole thing with the, the, this kind of like ragtag team that was all brought mm-hmm. together. And it was just, it was a team born out of survival more than anything else. Um, and then after, you know, Messiah complex, then we get the San Francisco stuff and eventually utopia. Um, so yeah, I think at that point, but there, there did seem to be uh, an attempt right after this to kind of go back to the '90s setting. I feel like I, I, I'm, I'm not getting that. Like, I, I mean, I admit the Whedon's run is very conventional, I guess, in the kinds of stories it was telling, like superhero fisticuffs, um, bad guys, and 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 superheroes. But you have like issues with with Emma saying things like, well, they will always hate us, children. Like, I don't like, I don't think you would have seen that stuff in the 90s. Like, so I think even though this, the stories are very conventional, like the type of leadership like they that they put on the, the team is so different than than before New X-Men. Like, I don't think Charles would ever, I don't think that's a Charles would never say that. I, I I agree there were differences, but I don't feel like the differences were as dramatic. Um, and I feel like there was... Or as fast as well. It yeah, yeah. It's much more of a slow progression before it got to like that. <clears throat> I feel anyway. But she said that in the first issue. Well, yeah, yeah but, but I still don't... Well, you, you it, said it, that, you know, when she's... I, it, I, don't, it, I disagree that she wouldn't have said that. I really think she would have said that. No, she she Absolutely. would have. She did. I just I just think no, like but before then though, I can think I can imagine her saying that to the Hellions or even the Generation X kids. Like, I, I think it was very on brand for for Emma Frost. Well, I think that's that I think the point Pat's making is that she was in a position of leadership, which was different. Power, right? right? Yes. yes. Like um, so, like yeah, like the standard bearer for the X the X Men are these two characters. But she that, kind of felt more like. To me, at least, and especially during in Whedon's run, she felt more like a devil's advocate type of character mm-hmm. more than anything else. Whereas um, Scott, at least in those early days during the Whedon one, se- seemed very much intent on integration, right? That whole idea of like, we have to be superheroes so that we can, you know, 
um, not scare away the normies type of thing. Yeah, but but at that point, I think it. I think he, when he says those kinds of things, it there's a sense of it's like yeah we're doing this but but it's not as if like i really buy it but it's a strategic move that i'm making um so like i I don't think he said that in the sense of like you know charles would say in the 90s where he's like yeah we have to do this so they would accept us and and like and love us i feel like scott would said that just to be strategic about it like this scares people less that's why we're doing it not because like i have some kind of commitment to making the normies feel better i think scott did evolve into that i will give you that but i don't think i i don't think that's what, at least my reading of of Wien's run was was not what he was going for with that what do you so guys I, I think guess, of the um, oh. sorry just to no, go ahead. move it back to the, the current arc what mm-hmm. what do you guys think of the the future x-men team um, the future I, new X-Men team. I thought it was a nice little lineup. Um, it was cool seeing that Beast had, uh, Beak has this grandson who's, you know, all badass and tough, and he thinks that his grandfather was, like, the greatest X-Man ever. Um, I did like that. And um, I thought Tom Skylark... You know what? I was a little bit confused about Tom Skylark. because I, I, Not that I, I liked his character. I thought he was pretty cool. Um, and I love Rover, <laughs> the idea of this pet sentinel named Rover. But um, one of the things I found kind of confusing about it is he talks in the beginning, early on in the arc, about being a human. But then when he's trying to wake Rover up, there's a clear energy signature coming from his hands. So hmm. I, I was kind of, I wasn't really sure what, whether, what, what was trying to be said. Maybe there's this idea that there are two types of mutants. Like there's the ones who are much more, have much more physical mutations, whereas the ones who are still much more humanoid in appearance seem more, seem to think of themselves more as humans. I don't know. What were, do you guys notice that? Where, where, what page is that? Um, moment. So let me see if I can find it here. Skylar, he was. Uh, I, I wish we got to see. We get to see more of him. I feel like the rest of the team we've seen in some iteration or not, whether it be the three in one or like Beak, um, Eva. Tom Skylark's kind of like the only one that we have no um, reference for now. Um, I think I it's really cool how Rover had a personality with just one word. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I picked up on that too. It's like a Pokemon. Um... Was it, I heard a story that, maybe a story is not, a, a rumor, a conjecture that this character was meant to be that character in Avengers Academy. Was there, is there any truth to that? Oh, like, from the, uh, from the uh, Sentinel? Like Sentinel. Is that, yeah. Is that him? Or was is this him? I think that was, I don't know. When- my understanding is that I think that was just what people thought when the preview okay. pages first came out. Um, okay. I never heard any, I, and I could be wrong, right? There could have been, that could have been. I mean, the they, they have different names for one, but I mean, it's possible. Well, he'd be a son or took a, on a different, though, right? Yeah, or something, yeah. yeah. I'm trying to find out where. Um, I'm, I'm glad to see that the tradition of uh, former villains redeeming themselves is alive and well in the future. Thank you, Ernst, which was also a very cool reveal, actually. 
it's such the art is so cool that one shot where they're walking in the rain and it's got um, mm-hmm. it's a classic like, like you know yeah it's fantastic shot it's so cool that Sylvester came back and just knocked it out of the park mm-hmm. the art it's in a- this uh, arc is like probably some of the best of the run it's incredible and I didn't read any of Sylvester's stuff when it first came out it was sort of before my pardon me my time but I think it's really cool when you get, you know, such a seminal artist come back and they, they've still got it. He's, mm-hmm. he still has it clearly. Is he working now? Um, I think he's mostly on the business side of things, uh, but he does do occasional like covers, I think every now and then mm-hmm. I know he, I think he was part, I think he was doing the art on and the writing on um, the, there was a cyber force revival several years Mm -hmm. back and i think he did that but that's the most recent thing i personally know from him but i think he's mostly just in charge of running the the top cow imprint of image these days i don't know patty do you know anything different um uh like what sylvester's up to now yeah um yeah i think you're right I, i think he's mostly just in charge of um reviving and kickstarting some of those classic comics and like re-releasing them but like i think this is some of his best work in this arc and yeah um like shout out to the colorist as well which i think really enhanced the stuff yeah i think i i remember um in peter david's x factor run they had one of the artists um i forget his name strom something like that one of the classic artist Larry Stroman that's it yeah 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 and he came back and done an arc for the second uh Peter David x-factor run and I thought oh it's gonna be so cool because his art was so cool back in the 90s and then when he the second um run came through it was awful it was like Mm. oh it felt like maybe like you know when you're a kid and you go to a playground and it seems like the slippery slide is like so big and then as an adult, you go back and you're like, oh, my God, it's tiny. Yeah, yeah. I thought, um, he I thought Sylvester would be like that, but it's not. It's, no, it's like no. The, yeah. the slide is just as big, if not better, than it was when you were a kid. So mm-hmm. I found the, just to quick note, I found the the page about Tom Skylark. This is on page 35 in the in the Kindle edition, the Comicsology okay. version. Um, yeah. And of the, just the Here Comes Tomorrow trade, not the Ultimate Collection. But um, he says to Ava... Um, Whereas I just had it. What he says, uh, he that? says, um, this was, I think this is the second issue in the arc. Um, mm-hmm. But he's talking to Ava and he says, I'm only a human being, Ava. I'm one of the last few thousand of us left in the whole world. I'm about to get intimate with extinction. I can say what I like. So he calls himself, he refers to himself as a human being, says, you know, he's one of the last ones. But, you know, later on, the beast, when Hank briefly regains control of his mind he you know he says Mm -hmm. that he lied about the cure and that and everyone's talking about humans being extinct and then when tom awakens you know brings back rover right he he's like putting his hand on the ground there's a clear energy signature that's traveling out so i'm not i think that's hank though i think that's hank if this is the panel you're thinking of like they're on the big boat, right? It's the, the final confrontation with um, Sublime. I think that's Hank doing that. What, this one? No, this, is, this is definitely... Right, right. 
I always I think it's Hank is is how I read that. I don't know. It seems to me that it I thought it was I thought it seemed like um it definitely seemed to me like the energy is coming from his hands and that he he's using it because it's also paired with you know him him calling out to Rover. So you're right. I, mean, I do see I do okay, I do see it now. Yeah, you're right. It could yeah. be Hank. Okay. Yeah, like in the next panel, you see like the bluish energy like coming from his hands and okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, all right. So I, I was so that makes more sense then. Um see, I was a little confused about what, what they were trying to say with with Tom, if he was actually a human or if he was a mutant who just you know, maybe identified as human because he doesn't have like any physical mutation. I don't, I'm not sure. Like uh, you mean because of Hank's line about lying about the cure? That and also well, the power signature was also another thing that made me think that too, but also his line about the cure and how there's all this talk about humanity being extinct and also Tom him, but then Tom himself saying that I'm only human and there's only a few thousand of us left in the world. So um that's why it was a little bit confusing for me about whether he was he was a human who's just really good with machines or whether he's a mutant technopath and he considers himself human because he doesn't because mutants have gone in a much more um have become much more physical mutations they've drifted from humanity as times have gone on yeah i mean like even if you know humanity's extinct or on the verge like i think it takes a while before they would all be gone so i well i don't think i'm i'm buying his story that he is indeed a human being i never i never questioned that he was not human i think i saw that that panel where he's got his hand down there i always saw that as the the beast phoenix um the power signature from the beast sort of attacking Tom Skylark there. I really like Tom Skylark though. I wish that we got to see a bit more of him um, or some iteration of him. I mean, after what they did to Zorn, are we sure we wish people had done more with the... (laughs) I feel like it would be a much more easier thing to get. Like, for one thing, his head, he didn't get decapitated. So we don't have to explain um, that part. Yeah, you know, we got Rachel from Days of Future Past. We've had yeah. Link uh, from Age of Apocalypse. Uh, why not Tom Skylark from Here Comes Tomorrow? I mean, I told, I told, I thought he was a, he was definitely my favorite of the of the new of the future X Men. Um, we also find out we get an explanation for No Girl too in this issue finally, mm-hmm. which I thought was nice um, with Cassandra saying, "I love being in your mind, Martha. Everything's so colorful and exciting in the cartoon world of No Girl." It's so cool, the shot where they get killed as well. Like, that panel is mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. They just get blown apart. That's probably one of my favourite panels of the arc. There's so many good good uh, visuals here. The Beast as the Phoenix with his cape turning into, like, the Phoenix-like figure. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the shot that we said before, um, like, the panel are walking through. And, and just the scene with uh, Emma and Scott by the grave. Mm-hmm. With Emma's, like fur coat and Scott looking like Jimmy Dean. Yeah. <laughs> um, those termids are fantastic. Um, and this is quite possibly let me think on that. Yeah, this this may be one of 
if not my favorite jean costume of all time. Okay. Such, I just love that look. It's so minimal, it's, um, but cool. I was going to say, it's barely there. <laughs> Indeed. And she's... Well, I mean, he loves the other costume, a, too. We're so seeing we're, a pattern we're, here, yeah. everybody. Yes. Anyway, it's fine. I think my favorite Jean Grey one is the one that she had for X-Men Red. Mm. I thought it was I felt it was too bulky for me. I, I like I, that it's she needs protection. Does she? <laughs> Telepath, they need protection. I mean they she's like, a telekinetic too. Genetic, too. She's got all those. Yeah, but I like the idea of like putting on uh, an people, armor, well, you know, it's, Oscar, it's cool. she's Omega level, just to remind you. She's Omega <laughs> yeah. level. Okay. Does she need the, I mean Omega level? She's I mean, um, telekinesis many times before. There's nothing the, wrong with an armor. The, the green yellow one that's kind of like evocative of the 90s one but it's not as bulky that she's been running around mm-hmm. with I, I think that's a really cool look um but you know what i really like i i kind of like the the white phoenix costume they had mm. um from here which, i thought that which, was a that was a cool little look too which is that's it uh, and i had no idea the significance of that when when i read this first but the, you know i found out like oh they intended it to be white like when she first showed up but oh i never knew that it. Yeah, but they couldn't do it due to the printing. I may be misquoting, but I think it had something to do with like the printing technology of the time. Like they couldn't render it white. So that makes again sense, another yeah. another nice bit of Morrison. Like he knows his stuff. He did his research. So it, it's cool that like her ultimate, I guess, iteration of the Phoenix is the custom version that they couldn't do initially. The first time. Mm-hmm. I love the like guard of phoenixes as well. That's like a really cool addition to the mythos. Mm-hmm. Um, Clinton Choir being mm-hmm. um, sort of the next, the next one to hold the phoenix crown. I think that's really cool. Yeah, that was a cool little blink and you miss it moment. Because I think the first time mm-hmm. I read this um, this arc, I didn't really notice that was Quentin. And the second time I read, I'm like, oh, I see it now. The the pink hair, man, is such a giveaway. I mean, I just I just wasn't maybe hair. I just wasn't paying attention because I there had been a gap in my reading because this was a mm. time when I was didn't have as much money and I had to take a break from reading comics. And then when I finally did get around to this, you know, there had been a big chunk of time between here and this arc, me reading this arc, and when I read Riot at Xavier's. So oh, yeah, the first that, time I didn't recognize that I didn't recognize Quentin at first. Like the the concept of the Phoenix core was very cool. I admittedly kind of blew my mind when it first happened. Um, although now it it seems like anybody can be a host, which is yeah, it's yeah, fine. yeah, it's fine. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, I mean, it I, was I, cool I, here, but now eh. I've enjoyed most of Jason Aaron's Avenger stuff, but I don't know why where he got the idea of making Echo the Phoenix. That just is bizarre to me. Yeah, it's super weird. It's super weird. And it just, uh, I think it diminishes the the mythos mm. of the Phoenix rather than adding to it. And I think, mm-hmm. like, I don't care how many Phoenix stories I read. I'll probably read them a hundred for the next 30 years. That's fine. But I want every story to be an addition rather than a subtraction to it. And I feel like Echo becoming the new Phoenix host is definitely a subtraction. Subs- subtraction, subtraction. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sorry. I'm trying to find there's this one quote that I really liked that I was thinking about. Oh, it was um, the, the Cassandra and um, Martha interaction. This is what I don't understand about the issue that Chuck Austin did right after this arc, when he completely 
misinterprets what Morrison had. When Morrison comes right out and says, I was Ernst. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. You can call me Ernst, dear. Yes. I also love the this um, this quote from her, you know, Europe after the rain. I still love that one. Like some sad memory of a future that never happened. I feel like that's another kind of meta line. That's mm -hmm. not only referring to this arc, but also, you know, Morrison knows what's coming next as soon as they leave. They know that it's just going to go all back to normal. So I feel like that's, it, it feels like another meta commentary uh, on the X-Men as a whole. Uh, I also like how... Um... That the resolution of Jean's story in this arc calls back to like, there's this sort of repeated refrain throughout the run of like the phoenix is here to disinfect it wipes away what doesn't work um, and you know of course everybody's worried because like she probably means human beings or or something but it, it's a very cool conclusion to see like oh she's here to clear out a bacterial infection. And, and to wipe away this future that doesn't work. Um, but speaking of what, what did you guys think of uh, Sublime when we finally find out what he is or it is? Yes. That may be more appropriate. So I've got that page queued up right here because I think this is a really, this was like the the key to unlocking mm -hmm. what Morrison The whole run. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The cataclysmic primal scribes of the newborn earth awoke us woke us and we knew ourselves as one mind and we were first genome rna dna perfectly adapted form the pinnacle of evolution self-aware immortal sublime we were dominant species when carbon slime colonies and bacterial mats gorged themselves on abundant hydrogen and were idiot emperors of the dawn world we hid and we thrived in the undergrowth of tangled dna we bartered our genetic innovations with increasingly more organized life forms, plants, insects, lizards, mammals. We were dominant species, primordial sequence, alpha gene, sublime. Even humanity, the crown of creation, had no defense against us. He imagined he ruled this world, but we lived inside him, invisible, unchallenged, unrecognized, until the birth of the mutant children, until Homo superior, a new life form born in the marvelous collision of radiant atoms and broken chromosomes. These mutations with their potential to breed strong and vulnerable offspring were the first real threat to our internal dominion. We had to infect them with aggression, had to divert their great energies into mindless conflict. Locked in perpetual struggle, they could never breed. Their population could never grow to threaten us with extinction. The supermen fight and die and return in a meaningless shadow play because we make them do it. I thought that was such a brilliant commentary on on the X-Men, and I feel like there, there's so much bundled up in that and in, in, mm. in what Sublime was saying there. So I like it. I love the concept, and I think I agree with you. There is so much there, but I feel like everything leading up to that part is too ambiguous. I wanted to see less subtlety. I wanted to see it be like, I wanted it to be more obvious until it was just literally read out to us in the very last issue. What do you mean? Like, like did, did you want, like, what do you mean? Okay, so what I mean is that it's, what they say, what do they say about writing? You know, like good writing says show, not tell. Mm -hmm. And I feel like at the end, Morrison is telling us rather than showing us that that's what happened. Yeah, I get you. I totally get your point. Um, that the the sublime stuff was a little bit too subtle. Uh, 
up until the end there. It's too I definitely- subtle. It's too, it's like a huge concept. It's like a really big concept stuff. And it had to kind of be read out to us at the very, in the very last issue for us to sort of get it to make sense. And I, I look, I'm not, I, I, I love it. I think it's really great. I just wish that it was more obvious throughout the steps that got us to the end. Like, do you just mean in this arc or like the, the entire the whole series you could say the whole series i i think yeah i think that's that's a very fair argument um i think it's there is a little bit too much subtlety because when when beast when the beast comes out and says you know you know call me sublime and all that i'm just like what what (laughs) exactly yes and then in the next issue when he explains Mm -hmm. it then i'm like oh okay i think i get it um but it took me at least one more reading of the entire run before I'm finally like, oh, okay, I see it now. Um, so yeah, I do agree. I do think it was, um, and especially this line here, Magneto killed you under orders he never understood. That was another example mm-hmm. of that. Um, the whole thing about Hank trying kick. And then we, and then here, you know, Logan comes right out and says, you know, hypercortisone D was Sublime's new aerosol form. And I do feel that, you know, we didn't really see Kick up until Riot at Xavier's, right? I think that was the first time it appeared. I believe you're right. And I feel yes. like I feel like there should have been more about Sublime and what he or they or whatever you call whatever pronouns you use for smart bacteria <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, was trying to do. And like I feel like there was a little bit. It was. I do agree. I think it was too subtle at the beginning. Um, I don't know. I I like this. I like the. I mean, admittedly, Hank calling himself that for me was somewhat confusing. It took me out of the story a little bit when I first read it. Um, but when that reveal kind of dropped, I thought it was very cool because well, that, that explained that, and it sort of recontextualizes um, all the times we've seen Sublime in the past and the entire arc. Um, while at the same time, and I mean, this is my reading on it. I'm not sure if Morrison would agree, but um, there's this cool argument being made about like all this nonsense and prejudice and fighting is because of bacteria. It's just a disease that we kind of need to cure. That's kind of fascinating to me. Yeah, it's... It, I, I do like it. I like the idea behind it, but I do agree with Oscar that it, I think it could have been, there could have been some more hints dropped earlier on. And, and That's maybe- what makes it, it, it makes me think as well that, um, and I think I've mentioned this in one of our previous podcasts as well, that I feel that the run towards the end of this um, run, this sprint towards the end of the run was maybe um, faster than Morrison had originally anticipated mm-hmm. and I, I think that might be an editorial um, influence to give Morrison some credit there I, I think it might be editorial influence that's that's caused the the run to be shorter than it should have been and maybe that's why we didn't have more hints leading up to it yeah I, I think so too yeah that I think that's definitely um if if we can ever get them get them on the show, then maybe we, we can ask them directly. But I think there's definitely something to that. Um, that it was it was maybe there would have been some more build up um, 
the fact that, you know, obviously at some point plans had changed and there was a need to kind of tie things up. Um, I'm not sure if they had always intended for Sublime to be this um, behind the scenes threat behind everything. I feel like Sublime really comes back into the fore and rioted Xavier's. And I think that's when it really kind of, I think that's when the sprint, as Oscar calls it, really kind of started. It's kind of interesting to think about though, like if in fact, I mean, he, they, sublime just doesn't infect mutants, but he infects everybody. I mean, on the one hand, it's it's a very interesting concept. Though on the other, I kind of worry about like trying to explain away all of these like complex human things with a bacteria. Mm-hmm. Like it it's a bacteria's fault, y'all. It, like all of this <laughs> is because there's bacteria. But I'm like, I mean, okay, but. I mean, it's interesting to, to like chew on for a little bit, but then you start thinking like, I'm kind of not satisfied with that. Like, like all this conflict and all this strife, it's just because of bacteria. I will say it's one, one of the cool things about it is that it's something I had never read before. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. It's a very, it's a brand new concept and I haven't read it before and I don't think I've read it since as well. And, and I think it takes like this very micro macro inversion that Morrison likes to do like I'm reminded from the first arc of those sentinels that look like cockroaches mm-hmm. yeah yeah the the chicken yeah. sentinels everything mm-hmm. yeah um yeah and you know what another thing another cool thing is this arc I think was in a way kind of teased as sort of a dark phoenix story but it really isn't right it's it's something that Morrison keeps coming back to like keeps teasing about this this dark phoenix but doesn't do it right there's no you know gene losing control of her powers and going evil right she what she's doing with with the beast here right it's just more that she's confused and doesn't know what's yeah. going on as opposed to her being you know you know eating a planet evil type well she did wipe out story. Those... there's no there's no well, doubt she... it's a phoenix story but it's not a dark phoenix story. Yeah, yeah. So she did wipe out those termids. <laughs> <laughs> Pour one out for the termids. And it's really cool that scene where she um, destroys them and uh, is talking to them in the moment. Or they're yeah, frozen. They yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah like mm-hmm. that. That's fucking cool, man. That was a very cool scene. Well, you know, I've that. obliterated you and I'm just going to talk to you in that moment. I'm going to suspend you in animation in that moment of your uh, There's also this other torture line. Torture and, 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 and get information out of you. There's this oh, other there's line a... that Gene... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, there, yeah, in that same scene, there's like all this interesting cosmological stuff, right? Especially when they start talking like, I feel like I've been here before. And she's like, well, you've always been here, just waiting to come back. And like... What does that mean? Um, also, I like this line from her when she says, it didn't deserve to end like that. My friends don't deserve that. I, again, I feel like that's another piece mm-hmm. of meta commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like Morrison saying that these characters deserve better than what, than, than the kind, they deserve a better, um, better stories than, than what we keep going back to. I thought mm-hmm. it was um, a little, and we get a little, a uh, little vision of the M Crown Crystal there for a brief panel too. 
thought that was a yeah. nice little callback. Um, well, also too, I think that this also feels like a theme. Like, did you guys read Invisibles? Mm-hmm. There's also that. Thought. There's also that similar idea when you get to the end of Invisibles of like you know the cyclical nature of things and like the 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 good side and the bad side being two sides of the same coin. There's a lot of that kind of stuff I feel like in this where it's you know. And Morrison has talked about this. If you read some of their old interviews when they talked about um, time and like their theories of, of time and all that and how it's not quite linear, but like everything kind of exists at the same time. There's a lot of that kind of stuff being played with here too. And also I think this concept of, um, they, they explore this too in I think Seven Soldiers, like this concept of, culture being like this product that's consumed by the masses um it's kind of shows up here a little bit but goes more like he they dive into that a bit more in seven soldiers there's also a bit of that in um in marvel boy too if i'm Mm -hmm. remembering correctly and Mm -hmm. and also you know final crisis right the whole idea of the new gods dying and being reborn in these new forms that's another that's also that kind of same kind of idea of like this cyclical nature of things um and even all-star superman had that too right you know superman dies at the end uh but you know there's but then you have leo quintum has this um this 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 way to 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 have um have a kryptonian dna be merged with human dna at the end so the idea of superman living on in some form that's that's another really common uh trope so yeah all these types of ideas that morrison plays with a lot i think are being used in in fun ways that work with the x-men here um what'd you guys think of the beast uh i thought it was kind of cool that they brought this biblical imagery to to and they <laughs> very much worked in this end of the world type stuff with you know the beast of revelations and all that kind of mm-hmm. thing he's a uh i'm not the biggest hank fan i've never really been the biggest hank fan i i, I feel like he's almost like I'm really struggling with my words today. I apologize, boys. It's like the character that just sort of stays in the basement and comes out when you need him to. Comes out when you need the explanation of the science or the technology or the whatever. And I think that's kind of a role that he's really good at. Forge is another one that's really good in that role. Um, seeing him here like this and being like the big bad was weird. It was just weird. I don't know. I didn't really like it. The one thing I did like about Beast is the, the way that he looked. Mm. was incredible um he looks strong mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay he's this beast is a nasty piece of work so mission accomplished on that front i think the choice of hank is also i liked it because it had a sense of ambiguity and possible confusion because like before that last part you're not quite I wasn't quite sure like what's going on. So mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting to kind of puzzle out and think about like, is this really Hank? Like, why did, why is this happening? How did it come to be this way? Like the sorts of things that he was doing to me wasn't really out of the realm of possibility of 
if Hank broke bad type of a deal, mm-hmm. which sadly enough, his current iteration has a lot in common with this iteration, <laughs> which is kind of, a, well, I, I don't know if you like your beast nasty, then, then that is your speed. But it's kind of like, you know, he has more in common with this dude than like, I would put money. I would put put money on it that it's dark beast current. Is the current iteration Mm -hmm. will be retcon to be dark beast to get everyone to love Hank again. Mm -hmm. Um, Um, I do think uh, this is probably my favorite depiction of uh, Beast's cat form. Is how Sylvester's drawing mm -hmm. it. I think it's it's this is probably the best that this form has looked. I think more than quietly. Yeah, I think so. I think I do like it. I mean, Quietly had some good renditions, especially I think my peak Quietly for me of this beast form was in um, the last part of E is for Extinction. I think that was my favorite when Quietly drew this design. I also really like the way Jimenez drew it, but I feel like Silvestri really nails the look. I think there's, there's a lot of inconsistency with even the same artist drawing beast. I feel like it was such a complex form. It was so difficult to draw that artists were still kind of trying to play with it and trying to find the right way to do it. I feel like Silvestri really seems to, to nail it and to be consistent with it. I, I do agree with Oscar that I, I really like the design for his costume. Um, it, it's a nice bit of uh, design work. I, I like that moment when that sort of the keep flares up and there's sort of like that Phoenix silhouette, which it gets the intended point across without being too intrusive. Also, um, what do you guys think of the the crawlers? Because uh, I feel like that's I feel like um, Hickman uh, definitely got yes. his idea from from this story. Like. Yeah, like which again is like and it makes me worried about like which Hank is running around Krakoa right now because <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly what I thought, Perry. Like we've hmm. got Sublime back. <laughs> yeah, this sounds familiar. Well, I mean, speaking of, like he's still around and he showed up in that Brian Wood um, story arc. Um, there was also was, uh, the, the end of still the, around the end of the Weapon X title too. He he appeared yeah. in that um, the, mm-hmm. the War of the Programs arc. Mm-hmm. Um, well, did, did did you think? Do you think he, it, again, I'm not sure what to call smart bacteria, um, fared well post-Morrison than, say, Zorn, like, as far as, like, being I don't think any, out. no character was handled worse than Zorn afterwards. Okay, all right. Yeah, fair, I, I, fair. I agree, I agree. Fair. Yeah, Zorn, Zorn definitely got, I mean, I think Phantom X was handled the best out of all the characters that mm-hmm. Morrison created. Um and and the, the the cuckoos as well. I think the cuckoos. I was just about and, to say that. What about the, the Stepford cuckoos? Yeah, the cuckoos well? and um, and Phantom X definitely came out the best. Um, speaking of the cuckoos, uh, what did you guys think of the revelation that they were Weapon Fourteen? Um. Well, here was just a line, like, and then I think was it Greg Pack who like, I believe so. Of, yeah, and the yeah, the Phoenix was, mm-hmm. titles. Yeah, who sort of took that and um, explored it. I thought it was very cool. I I really don't like that they're clones of Emma. I, I not everyone has to be related. Not everyone has to have you know this this family connection. I thought it was much cooler when they were um, 
ambiguous. Yeah, just prize students that were, you know, idolizing her and looking up to her and then despising her at the same time. Um, But maybe that is more of like a familiar thing. Like everyone thinks their parents are like superheroes when they're a kid. And then when you're a teenager, you're like, oh my God, you're a weirdo. Um, (laughs) To get more on point. I mean, the design feels like so on the nose that if they didn't do that, people would like it. Like, yeah, that was the one thing. Really? It's, that was the one thing where as well, right? It it did mm. feel a little odd too. That I, I do wonder, like, and I, I'm not sure. It's been a while since I've read those the Greg Pak series, but I can't remember mm-hmm. if they ever addressed this. But did anybody have any questions about the fact that these five girls show up and they mis- all mysteriously look exactly like Emma Frost? It doesn't... No, but I think in Warsong, there was a bit where he reveals like, oh, they've been using their psychic powers. Yeah, no, that's right. They were using their psychic powers to make it so that if anyone even thinks that, like they immediately don't. Okay. So, okay. so like the people were wondering that, but I, I, it was revealed like they were using their powers to, to like make sure that it doesn't become an issue. Mm-hmm. How convenient. Uh, indeed. I mean, it did feel like kind of a weird revelation to just kind of tuck in here because i remember reading at the time thinking like okay wait a minute so we had weapon 12 was you know the huntsman or whatever then we had mm-hmm. you know weapon 13 was phantom x and then we had weapon 15 i remember thinking at the time what what's weapon 14 how come well here you go yeah and then and then here at the end just kind of like oh yeah by the way they were weapon 14 all along i felt like it mm-hmm. was kind of similar with the the sublime thing in the way where it just seemed like we could have used a little bit of seeding of that idea earlier. Would have been nice. Mm. Um, and I, this one will probably make Oscar hate the idea more. But like, because I think the way they explained it is the Sublime harvested her eggs. So like, I think they're technically her daughters rather than clones. Although I'm not really sure if that if that's a difference that matters. <laughs> I mean, they basically look to like me. It doesn't anyway. to me. There you go. It doesn't matter to me. Like, mm. I, I just think it's a, uh, it's, it's just a, it's just a bit boring. So wait, it's uh, a bit this boring is of here, the origin, you know. Here's a question about that then, and I'm not sure if this was ever addressed, but, um, so they, you know, the eggs were harvested from Emma. Mm-hmm. Do, did we ever find out where the sperm came from? Not to my knowledge. I assume Sublime just used like weird future bacteria science to suddenly grow children out of them. But if, if there was a donor we never knew yeah i don't know but that was never revealed like a jerry springer oh. investigation yeah find out yeah. who the it's father a story it's for the future it's a story well, I, for the future. I mean hey, bring back I, chuck austin he could do it ugh, um, i can imagine that <laughs> like that wouldn't be hard to do if they really wanted to do it i suppose it's like, probably coming you know yeah. the yeah creators love to go back to and find little things that haven't been addressed in the past and then mm-hmm. do a story about it. So I, it's coming at some point. <laughs> I think they're just going to leave it alone. I hope they do. Like, it's not like the, the fans are knocking on the, the doors saying we demand to know who the father is. Father yeah, is. Nobody was demanding to know who Nightcrawler's father was either, but we ended up getting that story. So. I really wish that they would just retcon that away and have mm-hmm. what they originally intended, and that was that Mystique is actually Nightcrawler's father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Destiny is the his mother. I think that's so much cooler. It's such a better idea, yeah. 
I like the idea of Mystique being a, a trans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it makes so much sense. And didn't and that was and an being, idea being born male and then um, yeah yeah I think that's so cool. It stays and, with the character. And that was an and idea just really Claremont played around with a little bit more when he did his uh, Exiles run too, didn't he? Because that the Mystique in that was uh, had a male had a man form male. a male form as the mm-hmm. as the base. And and yeah, I think you're right. Really that cool. was the the original intent, but editorial stopped him. I think it's 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 a much better. I think I think the fans would all appreciate that original um, Nightcrawler uh, background, as opposed to the the absolute bonfire that um, Austin did with the Draco, which mm-hmm. still. Still, the Draco and She Lies with Angels are my two probably the worst arcs I've ever read. I mean, Holy War was also pretty bad, too. Oh. Which one was that? I remember that the, when I was buying... The Church of the Humanity with the, the teleporting wafers, or communion wafers or whatever that oh, show was. Oh, right, right, right. And I was going to be the Pope or something, and then they were going to take over the world. I don't know. They were going to do the rapture with teleporting communion wafers and and God, it was so stupid. Going into the comic book store and buying like getting Uncanny X-Men and then walking up to the counter and just like cringing inside before (laughs) I bought every issue (laughs) and being like, oh, don't judge me. I'm a completist. I have to after Holy War, that's that's what that's Holy War is the one that broke me. After that, I'm just like, nope, I'm done. I'm done. I can't Mm -hmm. do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Oh, I wonder why Marvel, like, because they're getting the genius that is Morrison and those books coming out, like, at the same time. What was Marvel thinking when they were greenlighting these, that Austin's run? Uh, every, uh, an X-Men flavor for every fan, Oscar. Clearly. I don't, I really don't know. I'm trying to. flavor. I mean, well, at the time, Austin was. The editors must have been reading it as well, right? Like, and. Well, <laughs> it's it's not even like I know that everything's subjective, all right. But that that mm-hmm. Austin's run is objectively fucking awful. Yeah, awful. Yeah. So I don't know how the editors could not be picking that up and being like, "Yeah, let's just make more of these." I mean, it was <laughs> it was selling. I mean, people were still buying yeah. it. The, I think the numbers did actually go up after Casey, which is mind-boggling to me because Casey was like so much better than than Austin. Yeah, it was but he's cool. Um, but it was, God, I I could never understand why people, the same people who despise Casey's run. I remember being on the message board at the time. They loved Austin's run. And I could not for the life of me understand why. Well, there's a flavor for every X fan. Yeah. I mean, it was, I think, I think a big part of it was just Austin, the, the book, you know, was still selling decently well. And Austin, you know, I think he had he had friends in the in editorial, right? He had he, yeah. so there. You know, why fire your friend if he's not as long as he's keeping the numbers up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only thing I did like that Austin did was Juggernaut, and um, I liked that he had Husk on the team because that's my favorite character. Everyone has a favorite X Men. I like yeah, I like um, the Juggernaut stuff. I I think it would have been better to not have Husk on the team than what we got with her. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I didn't really didn't like what um, Jason Aaron did with her either. I still don't really understand that. Yeah, that was a weird choice too. I, I like most of the secondary mutation, but we're not going to explain what the secondary mutation is. We're just going to say when she husks, she goes crazy. 
yeah that was a weird thing and i loved most of aaron's stuff but that was just one that was a every now and then he 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 does a lot of stuff i like but then he does something where i'm just kind of like what and that was definitely like the echo thing that and that the hus thing was another example of that um we're kind of drifting off now do we have anything else to say about (laughs) here comes tomorrow yeah this is the finale we should be uh on topic Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a nice capstone. Um, and uh, I think perhaps contrary to my co-host, I do think it enables and like allows a lot of different things to occur um, with some of the comics afterwards. I feel like there's the, for me, it was always that there's the potential for those other things, but I don't feel like that potential was ever fully realized Hmm. um but yeah i i i love this arc i think you know it looks great um you know definitely one of the better looking arcs of of this whole run um not as good i still think my favorite in terms of art would be um efer evolution efer extinction i think is still like the peak of the the art melding with the writing because as much as i love silvestri's art I don't feel like it's as good of a fit for Morrison's style of writing as, as quite Lee's art is. Um, But, but other than that, you know, I, I still love, you know, Sylvester's art. I thought it, it, it looked great. It, it, there were so many big ideas that Morrison put into this last arc, which, you know, admittedly, I do wish we had gotten them seated a little bit earlier, but it was still cool to see them nonetheless. I think in terms of art, this is one of the better ones. Like it's, it's, Sylvester just knocks every issue out of the park. And I think, um, Pat, what you were saying before about the colorist having a big part of that, I, I agree with that completely. The, the color is just uh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, in terms of my favorite art of this run, I always have a spot, soft spot for Bachelor. Um, I really like the Assault on Weapon X arc, especially the covers. Those covers mm-hmm. were just amazing. That one of Phantom X, incredible. One of my favorite covers ever, actually. Um, I, having said that, I think the synergy that Morrison and Quietly have is undeniable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the, the two of them together, the, the, the holes together make it better um, than either one of them have been individually, I think. Um, so, yeah, uh, really great to see Sylvester come through and do such a great job on this arc. But um, Bachelor will always be my number one. I feel um, like there's... I- and picking up on something you had said, Oscar, I feel like there's when I'm thinking about all the stories I've read by Morrison, I always feel like the best ones were drawn by Quitely. I think there's yeah, it, I think that's undeniable, undeniably true. They have a synergy together. They they're, do. They're yeah. Sure, mm-hmm. there's something about them together makes magic. It's lightning yeah, in I a bottle. This is one of those pairings that, like, I think, I think the only other one I can think of with that same kind of synergy is maybe. Gillen and McKelvey, like when they're together, it's just yeah magic. Um, but I I agree with that pairing, Perry. But I would say that Riot at Saviors is peak um, Morrison quietly for me in this run. Yeah, I agree with you there, Pat. I I feel like they had time to meld into the X Men by then, and um, especially that that three pages with these chasing the. Uh, the car that's, and the blob that's running away. Like those mm-hmm. three pages are incredible. So dynamic. Um, and that, yeah, that scene I, I with Logan, the, the Logan 
scene with the Escher. Like it's so oh, yeah, in my yeah. head. Yes. Soul patch keeps all I can think about is that soul patch. (laughs) Is that why it's not that arc? It's it's, that why it's a factor. I think it's a factor. Okay, okay. You know, they can just digitally take that out. Soul patches. I thought they they were always called flavor savers. What? (laughs) That's worse than soul patch, in my opinion. Well, I mean, it's I think it it might be more appropriate because it it really defines how ridiculous they are. Okay, fair. Is it flavor saber? Flavor saver. Flavor save because what food congeals on it? So yeah, Uh, I think it's more in terms of like cunnilingus. Oh, oh okay. well, clearly I did not um, <laughs> enough on. Okay, all right. The flavor stays on the flavors. Chin, okay, so okay, got it. Got I guess maybe go with food as well. I guess. But. Yeah, that's that's what my mind I mean, that's what, as well. That's and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm the straight guy here, and my mind still went to that one as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Aussie, okay, maybe just Aussie's got dirty minds is what I think it is. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, probably. Perhaps. Yeah. Because for me, I was oh, thinking I like can... like the mustache being a soup strainer was the mm. was the other, was the mm. old thing they used to say. I think I like my version better. <laughs> well, now we know why Wolverine had the soul patch. <laughs> oh, there you go. Oh boy. Go. Oh, boy. Okay. All right. Um. So I think that what a way to end. What a way. Yeah. To end what a way to end on. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, and that's it. The the end of the run. You know what that's 40 issues 41 issues total in this run um yeah one thing i will say is i i, I just before we we go i i guess because of the impact it had when i read it but i'm surprised how short the run is mm-hmm. yeah in my mind it was so much bigger until I sat yeah. down to do the reread for this art, for, for this podcast, and it, it it's quite, it's really short. Morrison was on the book for like three years, right? Two, three years, yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, wow, incredible. It's it is kind of funny when you think about it because these when you think about a lot of those big runs, because you know, we think about the Claremont Burn run too. You know, it's like being such a monumental thing. And I think we also tend to think about it being a lot longer than it was actually ended up being because in the mm-hmm. whole scheme of things, especially in the scheme of Claremont's entire run on that title, burn was just a small part of that. Mm-hmm. I think it's just the, the buildup of how important this run was to us makes us think that it was probably longer than it actually was. Than it was. But yeah, it all definitely- right. In my mind, it was definitely more than two and a half, three years, definitely. But oh well, it would have been nice for it to be longer too. I think it would have been cool to see what Morrison would have done if they had had the time to that they had originally expected to have on this title. Yeah, no, somewhere in an alternate like... universe, people are reading uh, another fifty issues. <laughs> yeah, um, and it left such a footprint. I think. Mm-hmm. It, I, there's Massive. concept yeah like concepts characters from this run are still being used today which may be why we have such a huge maybe an impression of it that it lasted longer because i think its impact is extended far far longer than oh yeah i mean because if you compare it to other writers who have had longer tenures right like mm-hmm. um scott labdell was definitely longer than this i think fraction yep. was longer than this as well 
Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, but those don't seem anywhere near as impactful as Morrison's run does. Mm -hmm. And Mike Carey was on the book for a long time. Yep. Yeah, but I, I look at Carey's run in a different way because it, it wasn't a core book. Right. It was it it was always kind of like this this side little thing, especially after Messiah Complex, because it was very Xavier focused for a good chunk. And then it moved over to, to Rogue. Mm -hmm. So it it's a different flavor of it as opposed to like the core X book type of thing. The flagship book. Yeah, it was yeah, never a yeah. flagship book. Right. Although I I think it probably I think I would have rather seen Carrie doing the flagship book than because I, I thought Carrie's that stuff he was doing, especially early on, like the Supernova's arc was Oh, Supernova's arc one of yeah. the best. So good. So, so good. Uh, that Rogue team, all of the arcs for the Rogue team that Kerry did was amazing. And the, the the Xavier and the Rogue stuff he did later was it was still good, but that first team was peak Kerry. Yeah, I just, um, I did end up buying all the all the books when you guys pointed out the sale to me. And um, so I've, I've been reading through them now and I just finished the the Xavier stuff what do you think oh i love it i thought the xavier stuff was i think it, i feel like i don't think there's ever been a better depiction of xavier i think he really nailed yeah. that character i mean i never thought if you had told me that there's going to be an x-men book that it's only going to focus on xavier and it's going to be awesome i would have thought what no <laughs> <laughs> yeah i could i can see how people would think it wasn't wouldn't be great i can see that he must have had a hard time in the sales room pitching that book but he, he knocked it out of the park. Mm -hmm. All right. So that does it for um, the read through. Uh, we're not quite finished with the podcast yet. We're going to see if we can reach out to some of the, the people who worked on this book, see if we can get them to come on. And uh, we'll probably do a few other topic based episodes before we, you know, drop the curtain on this thing. So we still got a little bit more content coming for you guys uh, once we kind of like decide what we want to talk about because <laughs> we're still trying to let that percol percolate a little bit. Um, but that does it for this episode. Uh, do you guys want to tell people where they can find you? Sure, you can find me on Twitter at ODAT220. Um, and you can hear me ramble about more X-Men stuff on my other podcast, uh, Curriculum Exports, uh, that you can find wherever you get your podcast. And um, my other show, SuperheroCinephiles.com, uh, where we talk about superhero movies. Um, uh, upcoming episodes, we're going to be talking about Robocop, Darkman, um, Multiverse of Madness, No Way Home. we got a bunch of stuff coming up. Uh, even the, the original, the 1990 Captain America movie with um, J.D. Salinger's son. We're going to be talking about that one uh, in wow. a few weeks. <laughs> um and uh yeah also if you're if you like reading um you know books without pictures my i've got a superhero novel called ronin born it's a cyberpunk superhero novel it's just it's been out for a while but it's now available on all the ebook platforms so that is at books to read slash ronin born so you can find that at all the retailers by going to that link uh that does it for this episode um, anchor.fm slash e for evolution uh, Morrison X pod on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next time. E for evolution examining Grant Morrison's X-Men is produced by Percival Constantine with theme music by Aaron Kenny audio of Grant Morrison and Stan Lee was recorded at San Diego comic-con 2008 and provided by bravo gabo.livejournal.com. 
You can find E4Evolution on Twitter and Instagram at MorrisonXPod and on the web at e4evolution.transistor.fm. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email address is e4evolutionpodcast at gmail.com. Support the show by leaving us a review at Apple Podcasts, which helps us reach more listeners. Special thanks to the members of the House of X Facebook group for their encouragement in getting this show started. 